Mouthing Off is a theater, arts, and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Kevin Couchman. And I'm Mari Sidner. Mouthing Off features compelling interviews and discussions with creators and artists from around the Twin Cities and beyond. Tune in for something different online where you get your podcasts at badmouthtc.com and on the air in St. Paul from Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM. We hope you enjoy the show. We're back with another episode of Mouthing Off Theater Arts and Culture Podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Kevin Couchman in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota, snowy St. Paul, and I'm joined as ever by the dynamic duo. They complete the trilogy, Mari Sittner in New York City. Mari, how's it going? Going good. Glad to be back. Mm. Do it again. Yeah, yeah, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep mouthing off. And Amanda Forstrom here in Minnesota. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Can't wait to run my mouth. <laughs> that's that's what <laughs> Yeah, we're we're making space for mouth running on mouthing there we go. off. And you know by now this is an interview podcast. We have guests come on and I'm personally very excited to have on a man who I consider a a, a friend, a colleague a collaborator, uh, and I guess, what would you say, a renaissance man? Is that fair to say? Tom Block. Tom, Thank how are you? you? I'm mm. great, Kevin. The problem with being a renaissance man is that the renaissance has been over for like 400 years. So it was probably a bad call on my part. I think I, uh, you know, probably if I could redo it mm. in AI or something, you know, but mm. the die right. is cast. The die is cast. Tom Block, a man out of time. And Tom, <laughs> you and I co-founded something that you've continued and sort of have run with since I left New York City, something called the Cut Edge Collective. Do you care to introduce that and tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, that that was thrilling. Uh, I, I always say when I talk about how we founded that Kevin and I um, met and we basically both said there's just not a uh, a lot of support for non-traditional theater. And uh, we define non-traditional, or you did, as something that departs in some way from the uh, normative contemporary traditional aesthetic. It could be in terms of how time is presented. It could be narrative or characters. Uh, it could be place. Um, so we, uh, Kevin and I, founded this back in 2020. We began it in 2019, and then we had our first meetings in 2020. Um, and we found there is a strong interest um, for playwrights to find a place where they can come in. And we, we do uh, once a month, we have a workshop. So people, we hire professional actors and we do a cold reading and then we discuss it um, under the uh, rubric you set up, what you're warm about, what you're cool about, questions back and forth. Oh, you haven't jettisoned the uh, oh. the structure. Oh, good. I, I, yeah. I can still hear your voice every time I do it. I go, okay, oh. okay, uh, you know. I'm so sorry. Two seconds of silence. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> and uh, then on a third a Tuesday of every month, we have a salon, which has really been extremely fertile, where we'll discuss issues of concern around um, – non-traditional playwriting. So it might be a, a playwright that wants to talk about gender roles. It might be a playwright that wants to talk about time usage or what is 
non-traditional theater? What is experimental theater? And they send a couple of readings around and then we meet uh, and talk. So the workshop is back in person, which is great. We sit in a room at ART New York, at 528th Avenue, um, and we read it in person. And then the salons are online. So, ah. And then at the end of the year, we have a 10-minute play festival with all the playwrights. Uh, and this last year, we had three nights, two of which were sold out, and one of which was 80%. So it was kind of a thrilling um, a thrilling evening, few evenings at the Tank in Midtown. That's excellent. People definitely want to be back, and they want to see new, exciting, thought-provoking, questioning art. Weird art, fun art, crazy art. There was some mm. of that, Amanda, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is all happening in New York City. Correct. We are currently entirely based in New York City. And as our um, base expands, we're kind of adding, I think next year we're going to add a component or this year we're, we're going to be publishing our 10-minute plays from the 10-minute play festival. So we continue to kind of modularly add things to what our uh, organization is able to do. It's great. Well, and I recall that, you know, we met and you were already running a group that was sort of comparable in terms of the salon we were sort of you were thinking about it and then that kind of fell apart then you came to me and said or, or i can't i can't exactly remember what happened this is in the before times but i remember admiring the fact that you were making space for ideas and really setting the time aside to say we're not going to talk about work tonight we're not going to workshop a play we're going to talk about ideas that to me is it, pairing that with a kind of ongoing workshop that still excites me as an idea. So I'm glad that it's it's taken hold and people are finding it valuable. Yeah, I think there is, and and a lot of people are, are very excited because it's it is it's very unusual. Like you said, you know, you mm. don't usually just sit around and talk about the ideas underpinning these non traditional works and and the exchange of ideas with one playwright kind of leading each session. You know, um, one time a year. Uh, yeah, we have found that to be uh, fertile. And, you know, when you begin these things, you don't know it could fall apart, um, but it does seem to have taken root. So, Well, and that structure, too, where it isn't one and there's room for, hey, you go to grad school or you're with a master playwright. Yeah, there's room for them to put a syllabus together and say, hey, yo, we're going to read these plays and talk about this. But it's nice as a collaborative, as a collective, cutedgecollective.com, uh, you are expected to bring in some concepts as part of your your role there with the with your colleagues yeah, yeah and, th and through the year you know we go out after the uh when we meet in person we all go out to a um a bar we have a milkshake or have a drink or whatever and so it does <laughs> continue to deepen this relationship which is so important then as we get into some of the ideas because it's, it's it becomes a a very personal very uh, respectful interaction between the playwrights um yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. Well, I, I left New York in 2020, so now I have a not that I need an excuse to come back, but if and when I, I visit, I will certainly look up what y'all are doing. That's very exciting that you're going to publish the the 10 minute plays as well. Do you have a publisher in mind, or are you going to do it yourself, sort of ad hoc, like with Amazon or something like that? Yeah, it'll be ad hoc, and we'll yeah, give a cool. few copies to each writer. I mean, I publish, I run another organization called the International Human Rights Art Festival. So um, that's a much bigger international arts and human rights organization. And we have a book publishing platform. Mm. So I have in my wheelhouse kind of a lot of these skills, and I know how to find a designer inexpensively. And um, just due to the the tank, 
uh, being so supportive, we actually are, um, we have enough money to be able to support that kind of thing. So what we're talking about that, we're talking about maybe going away for a writer's retreat together. Um, we are very age diverse. We are run from about 25 years old. We have a 90 year old playwright this year. Oh, tremendous. Yeah, and he, with a long arc of a career, he's got a theater named after him in Washington, D.C. He's hmm. written a book on playwriting back in the 90s. So uh, we have a, a wide range of views and um, experience. We have a woman uh, who's, who's brought her first play ever to us. Can I ask Al who this gentleman is? Uh, his name is Al Lefkowitz. And um, he has the Lefkowitz Theater at the Writers Center in Washington, D.C. is named after him. He founded something called the Writers Center down there. And he's been produced all around uh, the country dozens of times. Absolutely. I know exactly who that is. That's do amazing. Really? I do. And I've been to the Writers Center. Yes. Unbelievable. All right. Well, yeah. Honest Al, we call him until he lies. <laughs> uh, and, and Tom, I, I hinted at this by calling you a Renaissance man, like I said, but you are you do a lot of things. You mentioned the um, International Human Rights Arts Festival. Did I get that correct? Yes. Yeah, but you're also a visual artist and you've written scholarly writing. I mean, you've got a lot of uh, irons in the fire. Yeah, I think the in terms of theater and writing, uh, during COVID, I actually got a contract from a publisher called Rutledge to write a book called Mysticism in the Theater, What's Needed Right Now. And that came out about a year ago. Um, and that looks at coming off of the work we were doing in this non-traditional theater. It developed a model for in, in, inputting mystical ideas into contemporary the theatrical works. And it... The first chapter looks at what is mysticism, what do I mean? Second chapter looks at a history of mysticism within theater, most of which is Greek and Shakespeare, and that's about it. And then um, in the last chapter, I develop a whole model of how you would use these kind of mystical ideas to fuel all aspects of a production. So that was, how, that was mm, thrilling. Yeah, in but, uh, in uh, under three minutes, how would you use uh, mysticism to fuel a production, Tom? Well, um, that's, a, that's a half the book right there. That section. Um, Give me the cliff notes. Well, let me define mysticism cleanly defined as basically a person looks into themselves and see where they connect with the universal energy. And they look into the world and they see the unity beneath the diversity. So it was developing a whole number of, uh, from rehearsal I did a production actually in October 2021 uh, where I implemented a lot of these ideas. And so, for instance, the actors had a much stronger directorial role. They would often say, you know, what should I do here? And I'd be like, well, you know, what is your character feeling there? I, I gave them, they were much more collaborative. It was much more collaborative. Um, we did, that one had a lot of work around mystical ideas in the sense that nothing was exactly as it seemed. Um it took place in a in a timeless region. In, in this particular play, the audience came in and they were ushered onto stage, and then they were kind of closed in there. And then when the play started, the characters came in and sat in the theater as if they were waiting for something to start. So there was this pregnancy that was never um, that was never realized. It, it, sort of, they sat there for 45, 35 minutes. There was a three minute scene where they ate pizza in silence. So it was talking about silence. It was talking about time. It was talking about, you know, we have a sense that time moves 
forward, but this was really about circular time. Nothing happened. You know, they, they got up and they moved around and then they said, well, that didn't do anything. You know, the kind of the sense that, that sense we have sometimes the pointlessness of life, but what's beneath that pointlessness. So it's dealing with a lot of these specific issues uh, in, in a theatrical manner. The issue is what kind of audience, you know, we always talk about this in cut edge, you know, when you start moving in this direction, you, you are being much more demanding of your audience. And to what extent are you curtailing your ability to, so this is always a fine line, always part of the discussion in this kind of theater, you know, unless, unless you're uh, Brecht or something. Right, right. That, uh, that production's fine and everything, but how about doing something really experimental, Tom? Just kidding. Like, <laughs> and like, yeah, I don't know. Sure. No, no, I, that's great. I, and I think Monty, who has, whose play we read and you can go into the back catalog and hear a reading of Badmouth Theater Company do Monty's play. It's all read like a metaphor or something at badmouthtc.com. Yeah. It's all read like a metaphor or something. It's all read. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, was it Salt Mother that Monty yes. said? I think, Tom, you were the inspiration or that play that you described there. What What's that play called that you were with the pizza? Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Conject a very good title. I quite like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think you influenced uh, Monty. And this is one of the great things about collectives and getting together and talking about ideas and not just going to see random work and then maybe you know sniping at your fellow playwrights from behind the mm -hmm. scenes right you build a relationship so you can there's something more um fruitful about that approach i found some of my most productive times in life have been around writers groups like this uh where yeah you have that relationship and then you come away going gosh uh you know i wouldn't do that the way tom did but I like this idea. Yeah. Well, Mon Monty is a particularly fearless playwright. In the 10 minute play festival, we were teching in, and that, you know, he's talking to the TD, and all of a sudden he goes, No, 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 that's ac after Fracture 22. And I'm like, Ah, Fracture 22. Monty Monteliegre is in the house. There's no scenes, <laughs> there's no acts. It was Fracture 22, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was, wasn't that the play where it's just how many scenes? It's just uh, this like one hundreds had about of 40 scenes. 10 minute yeah. play with 40 scenes. And, Look, there were some people who came up to me afterwards, was like, I didn't understand it. And I said, I can assure you, Monty doesn't either. But the question <laughs> is, does it hold together? Does it inspire thought? And for me, it really did. He had actors that really bought in. Mm. You know, really beautiful, beautiful acting. Um, and his work is is very, uh, it's tough, you know, and I, can, I, I applaud him for continuing to go um, in this direction and, and not, it's hard, you know, when you go out and half the people are like, I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. You know what I mean? It's hard to stick with your voice. And I think he really does. Mm. Are you, this is, I got to pull a Rolodex question out here, but are you working on a new play now? Well, I, uh, no, I mean, mm. it's so, it's so brutally difficult to uh, get anything more than a reading in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sending, I have a lot of, plays that are on down the road towards I think being production ready and I'm sending those around but I'm not currently uh working I'm doing a lot of visual art right now so well I mean I, I would need some uh strong inspiration to start working on another play it's, it's really to move beyond a reading in New York City especially with this kind of work is is you know do a GoFundMe right. for 30 grand you know yes 
do you take the same approach to uh, visual art as you do to playwriting, a more untraditional uh, idea approach, or wh- how, how do you approach visual art? Yeah, I think so. I'm actually right now pairing visual art in my own writing. Um, we're weird, but the short the short story writing is very non traditional. It's not linear, and then I'm pairing uh, an unusual visual aesthetic with it. I'm not even concerned with showing that. I'm really just doing this as an exercise and pushing myself. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, historically, I've been my, an expressionistic painter, but now I'm kind of moving off more into my own language. Um, but, you know, the, the issue, we do talk about this, the issue of audience is always foremost when you're not right down the middle or you have, you know, what's what's happening in New York right now, and, and Mari, maybe you'll agree, is two things. One, confessional plays. I overcame this problem and now I'm okay. And two is um, identity plays. I can't really write an identity play. You know, I grew up stoned on a couch in the 1970s in the suburbs. It's just, it's not a story <laughs> anyone's particularly interested in. So... If you move outside of those aesthetics and visual arts, sort of the same. Visual arts much more driven by um, the market. I'd definitely watch that play, Tom. And maybe if Monty <laughs> writes it, come on. Monty <laughs> writes my story. I'll talk yes. to him about that. Uh. Monty grew up in Nebraska. He's got his own story to tell. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to push forward these ideas in the theater, and it comes and goes. It's like uh, what's it's like catching lightning in a bottle really and there'll be moments where scenes will rise up and tastes will change and it'll come back it comes it goes you have to stay true to yourself i know everyone here knows that but i'm saying it for the old timey radio Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's interesting because just this past week i saw like four plays off broadway good houses they were all um non-traditional and i was astounded i was like wow maybe the worm has turned you know i mean they were really one, the two char- main characters enter and they turn into trees and the playwright actually pulled it off. I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's no way the playwright pulls this off. And they did. And one was in the round and behind us and had Indian dance as a part of it. Um, so it was really heartening to see that maybe, uh, maybe the worm is turning in it and it doesn't happen. It's not broadcast ahead of time. No. Things just kind of change. You know what I mean? So I, I was very excited about that um, to see that there seems to be much more openness to this kind of uh, unusual theater in the city. You would think after the events that we all just went through with the pandemic and all the rest of it, there would be an explosion of creativity and uh, potentially sort of dissident work, work that is trying to buck whatever got us here in the most extreme way possible. That's what I would expect to emerge within the next three to five years Uh, and structure. Mm, Yeah. Maybe these were the first, you know, uh, the first sounds, the first moments of that, but these, you know, and, and they had production money behind them. These were, these were not Mm. downtown basement theaters. You know, these were Mm. signature playwrights horizons. Oh, great. Yeah. 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 It's so impossible to predict what's going to start to bubble to the surface in the theater at any given time. It's just, it's a vibe. Uh, And if you catch it at the right moment, it can be fantastic. Just good to be in it and writing and to be, obviously, if you're, you know, playwright in the United States, you know, y'all being in New York City, that's where, that's where you want to be. I mean, there's no way around it, really. 
No, I think it's important to get out and see work. And I know uh, Mari's here. And you can do, you know, Mari, I'll say this for anybody who's in New York, there's a lot of, there's TDF, and then there's Theater Club and Club Free Time. And these are services where you can get tickets for basically five bucks or 11 bucks or half price. Um, and I do all my all my plays, I get off of those. So I see what's, what you would say is not selling tickets in a way, but it has no relevance to the quality of the work. I don't, you know, some, um, so I've seen some great off Broadway pieces for five bucks a ticket, you know. And then I go out with someone and they think I spent $70 and they take me out to a nice dinner. It's great. <laughs> Life hacks with Tom Block. Exactly. And uh, and you can find Tom's website at tomblock.com. Uh, is that correct, Tom? And it's uh, B-L-O-C-K? Correct. Tom okay, Block. I got it. Yeah. And uh, 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 an accomplished visual artist. You're not a... I a have a hmm. full career, yes. Yeah. Shows, I'd say not a dabbler in any of these fields you don't play around i admire that tom Thank i really you. do i yeah. hope i move beyond successful dilettante phase but who knows <laughs> uh well so tell me about and i i know this is a very deep kind of question but like how did you become interested in mysticism and how does that relate to and feed this interest in the experimental in art for you? I, I'd like to say I fell into mysticism, but there must've been some pre, uh, you know, some kind of pre-existing interest. But way back in the nineties, I just uh, started a program of reading. I was living in Western Spain um, and I started reading a bunch of stuff. And I found that of all the various intellectual systems that mysticism, which is rooted in a question mark and not an exclamation point, seemed to me to make the most sense in terms of uh, what's going on here, that at the bottom of it, it is a question mark. And you can't get past that. And mysticism just asks uh, followers in, in all religious traditions to just sit with the question mark. And they are often considered heretical because mystics do not drop, drop money into the collection plate on Saturday or Sunday or Friday. So they often have problems with uh, religious authorities. Um, so I just started reading. I wrote several books inspired by mysticism, and then it has sort of suffused all aspects of my creativity. So mysticism and theater, I wrote the book. It's sort of an academic book. My theater is mystically inclined. My painting is mystically inclined. But why does that lead to non-traditional work? Because the point of mysticism is to break things down. It's breaking normative reality down to find out what's under it, which is this question mark. And so non-traditional work does that too in, in all the media. It breaks down the normative way of us accepting what, what's considered a realistic play, for instance, isn't, isn't realistic at all. We all experience the world from with our, our own perspective. But a realistic play is this kind of weird eye in the sky, quote unquote, objective look at some kind of action. It's that surrealism. Realism is seeing a play through one person's eyes. So just if you write a play from one person's eyes, you might have some very twisted characters out there because they're through one person's vision of what that person means to them. Totally agree. And that view can shift over the course of a play. It can shift exactly. from moment to moment. It can, and I think it should. I think realism is a, is a lie. It's an aesthetic lie. I have strong feelings about that. 
I yeah. couldn't agree with you more. That's why we started this, Kevin. That's and we found it. That's we found began. each other out of the woods. We crawled. We turned into trees and started something. Uh, Mari, do you, have, do you have anything for Tom? Yeah. I'm. I guess I'm just curious. Yeah. How did you guys meet? And how did you guys start working together? I it's I started this uh, was starting it with um I don't remember her name but I was starting a, a non traditional theater thing with this uh, woman uh, called um I don't remember what it was called the experimental theater group or something and Kevin came to the first meeting and Kevin and I uh, really hit it off and then I was like you know I don't want I don't think I have a, a a path with this woman she had her own very specific ideas of how things should go and she wasn't reading full plays everybody got a 10 minute excerpt and whatever it just didn't seem to me to be the best thing so then I I said to Kevin or Kevin said to me you know we should uh, go our own way we can do our own thing you know. So we did our own thing. Yeah, I'm a big do your own thing kind of a guy. And and this format, you this isn't like trademark patent pending. Anybody can do this. Yeah. Uh, and it really is just as simple as getting a group together. If you have if you meet somebody you're simpatico with and you start sharing work, you have a writer's group. You add a third person in and so forth. And there's really no mystery or science to this short of being civil uh, and open-minded and generous. And and I talk a lot, but you have to be a listener. And then I also do think I am glad that, you, that you've maintained that feedback structure, which is really formal, but not uh, severe. And, and really, um, I've found over the years of running talkbacks, some pub, very public talkbacks, those can get real gnarly and out of hand. And and this method of giving feedback to one another does seem to soften the blows and and you know leads to um, productive discussions. It um, does, and yeah. we actually have one rule which might soften it even more, which is the playwright. When you ask questions of the playwright, these are rhetorical questions. I always say, you know, an answer from a playwright in that situation is generally just self justification. Mm. Completely, and, completely and as the Sufis say, self-justification is worse than the original offense. So the playwright, for the most part, can't answer the questions. They can write them down. They can think about them. You know, if, if someone is, says, no, no, I want to know if Billy has red hair or, or blonde hair, then okay, you can answer it. But for the most part, we do not allow that to dissolve into one of these. No, no, you don't understand what I was doing was, you know what I mean? Well, and for people listening who don't know, this format is something that um, that I adapted over the years from the Liz Lerman method, which I picked up, which and Liz Lerman um, was a big time uh, dance person um, and kind of came up with this method of feedback. And I it's it's about giving feedback and taking feedback as a creator of performance and uh, writing, whatever you could use it for, I think, any piece of art practically. Um, and uh I first got exposed to this at Red Eye Theater here in Minneapolis. And then sort of over the years, I think I maybe added a few touches. And that playwright not responding, that is something that I that I swear by too. I think the playwright should have a notebook. I think it should be timed. I don't because it can go really, really long. Mm-hmm. We haven't had yeah. that problem. Oh yeah, good. People want yeah. to get to the bar. Yeah, uh, for sure. Well, okay, fair enough. Uh, when I do these, and it's been a while since I've done these in public, but I try to tell the audience like this is going to be on a timer. Because right. people get real squirrely. They just sat for 100 minutes and now wait. Yeah, they want to get to the bar. But the feedback method is really easy. You 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 ask the group 
So let's say you've read a play, uh, first first draft of a play, first time a play has been read aloud. Uh, you have somebody moderate. The the playwright sits there with the ball gag in their mouth. Of course not. I'm just kidding. Um, and you ask for uh, warm feedback from the audience. What do you feel? What really stood out to you? Then you ask, what what, what comes after that, Tom? Cool. Cool feedback. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then, yeah. um, well, what we do, following your model, we uh, and then it's questions you have for the playwright, but by and large, they won't answer. And cool is, you might say, I might say, okay, what do you feel cool about? Where did you fall out? What didn't you understand? You know, um, in this uh, last play, for instance, it was set in the 1950s. I'll give you one example. And um, there were racist terms for everyone up to and including the French, it was at the Korean War, except for the ethnicity of the writer that wrote it. Oh, dear. And I said, you know, I'm cool on that. If you're going to do that, you got to throw in your own, okay? Right. Because I don't yeah. believe that your ethnicity was exempted. You know, you didn't exempt anyone. Wow. And I just said, you know, I think that that's that not unusual kind of, no, no, no I don't, you know what I mean? But I said, you got to You got to take after your own too, you know? So that was sure. a, cool, a cool feedback for me. Right, right. Yeah. And that and that gets right at the edge of that. If you have the wrong group together and you're not moderating, you don't have rules, that's what I mean. A conversation like that, like at a workshop where there's everybody isn't sympathetic, that can spin out of control. Yeah, no, it was he didn't say anything, and I mm-hmm. people didn't say I agree or disagree. It was just a comment of of other comments, you know, because there is a real, is a, a strong, respectful sense. And I said, this is my feedback. You, you take it or leave it. I mean, that's the way mm-hmm. these things work, obviously. But um, well, so, and yeah, do you have any advice for for artists? And and I also think for like the general populace, uh, in terms of like how to take feedback generously as somebody who's thought about it, it's really important for artists. It's really important for people of all walks of life. I think two things. One, still your ego. Um, assume people have the best interests of your work in mind, uh, unless you've developed some personal animosity with one person in particular, but you have to assume that. And then second of all, by not allowing the playwright to respond, you cauterize all that negative energy. Mm. It's cauterized because they're not going to get into an argument. They can. Mm. Right. Um, so I think those two things together, but I think keeping in mind that, and, and when I went to my organization with my board, you know, oftentimes things get spicy and um, <laughs> someone will say, so I say, no, no, I think honestly, you have the best interest of the organization in mind and, and I'm taking it in that vein. And I think it's important as a creator, as a writer, uh, to really believe that most people have the best interest of your work in mind. And they, you may disagree with them, and that's fine. Then don't respond to it in your writing. Um, but I think that's important. You know, the, for the most part, it's not ego-driven, I don't think. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we have Amanda here, an actor. Uh, I want to ask you, Tom, about directing the actors in that piece that you mentioned recently that was highly experimental where you sort of allowed them to self-direct. I'm personally, I'm personally very interested in the work of Mike Lee, uh, the great theater and film director from the UK and how he uh, semi devises his his pieces where they'll work for a month in character 
and a lot of that stuff will make its way, you know, onto the screen or onto the stage. Was it a process somewhat like that? And how is that different from, I guess, directing like a kitchen sink piece where you want them? Not that you ever would, Tom. I'm not slandering your good name. But yeah, Um, what was that like? So we did similar things. I did a lot of uh, long form improv in where they would develop the relationship with their characters. They, I would say something like, okay, you guys are meeting again. You haven't seen each other in two years. Catch up. It'd be a half an hour improv. Um, Okay, you're in group therapy. And they had to figure out which role their character would take, whether they were the ones who were in need of therapy. One of them was like, you know, a healer, the kind of the one who was trying to make everything better. They kind of took on a therapist role. Uh, We went out to lunch, Chinese food in character. So we did a lot of character work that would then translate because i really wanted to sense that these these characters had known each other literally forever past Mm -hmm. life regression however you wanted to so i wanted to develop a very strong relationship and they had very clear roles in my mind um but that we did a lot of that kind of work um and then the blocking we allowed to kind of emerge during rehearsal we did set it now i think when you do a kitchen you know, I've seen directors direct my work and it's like, they're like putting puzzle pieces together and it should be the same every night. We had about a third, one whole role that was improv and we had a bunch of other improv, which is part of the kind of model I developed woven into the play. So, and we also had uh, the first act, we had a, one of the characters sitting in the audience hmm. and you didn't know he was a character until he got engaged right at the end of the first act. And mm. then he shows up as the main character in the second act. Oh, and fun. he has a mask, a mask on in the second act. Oh, um, my goodness. So we we just we played with a lot of these different ideas. Um, and some of them, look, some actors want to be told what to do. And we had a problem with a couple actors who were like, no, no, where am I supposed to be now? And the response would be, wherever you want to be. And they got very upset with that. And some of the actors really took to the whole collaborative part and got into it. So you need, I don't know if you've read Grotowski and um, his, who was his mentee? The guy up in uh, in Norway. But they collect a very specific kind of actor. And I think that would be the goal of everyone to do this work is to have your own ensemble that believed in this kind of work. You'd have to. You, know, you can't go on a backstage and get someone who comes in because they're going to get an equity showcase contract and somebody might see them because they're going to be like, why am I, what's my motivation? You know, <laughs> the response is, you tell me, you know, and that mm. did not work with all the actors. What's yeah, in your maybe. cup? You know, is it coffee or is it ice or no, yeah. you tell me, you know, I, I love that. They, you know, they do. And I think, uh, I'm really excited for the rehearsals for One Good Marriage, the production that Bad Mouth Theater Company is going to start because Kevin has hinted at doing some of these exercises in our rehearsals. And it's something that actors don't get a chance to do very often because I think there has to be uh, such collaborative spirit, uh, curiosity, uh, a, a fun, positive attitude, and a uh, and a trust there. And I'm not saying that's not generally in rehearsal rooms because it is, but there's a different sort of, uh, puckish playful spirit that needs to, that needs to be underneath the surface to kind of be able to do that stuff along with this trust. And it's very rare that you get to do it. And, and there's the time aspect too, right? You have 
three and a half weeks of rehearsal and then the weekend of tech and then you're up. So there's really no time to play sometimes. And I'm really excited that Kevin is thinking about doing that, is going to do that. We are going to do that. We're going for Chinese and I will be sending <laughs> in character. a picture in, in character. Excellent. Yes. We, and, and we had one character who actually spoke Mandarin and ordered the whole meal in Mandarin for them. And they were all flipping out in character. That is amazing. <laughs> I love that. Ugh. Very good. Very fun. Mari, you have something? I'm curious, within Cut Edge, are there any themes that you kind of see like recurring with the writers? I mean, I know you said that it's a really diverse group, but Kevin and I are writing two plays for our upcoming season to perform as readings that ended up having kind of similar themes. And I'm curious if that happens or if there's anything that you feel kind of circulating in the air would that people want to think about? Um, you know, I haven't seen like a specific kind of theme. Everybody, I mean, the Al's play was about the uh, Korean War and um, my play was a retelling of the story of Job and Paul's play next month is Cats. I don't know. It's got real like cats and three of the characters are cats. I don't think it's like Cats. but um, So I haven't seen that, but what I do see is playwrights by and large pushing at the boundaries of traditional uh work so, yeah i guess that's sort of what i mean not, is if you see people playing with like time and space and kind of similar ways no everybody has their own way and, and there's so many different ways to do uh to do non-traditional work i mean like you know uh, paul's writing in uh, two of his characters are cats so um and my play was this <laughs> bizarre absurdist retelling of the story of job where this orthopedic surgeon named Frank Job had his life destroyed by the, the auditor general of Michigan. And then at the end had everything given back to him. Cause that's what happens in the, in the story of Job, you know, down to finding a wife that wanted to have 10 kids. Um, so everybody approaches these things in, in a different way, but they are all trying to push in some way at the boundaries, but we're not finding that kind of thematic similarities like, because people, the artists, the playwrights in this collective are already removed themselves from the mainstream aesthetic and are on a much more personal path. So it's, um, it has proven to be over the years, now in our fourth year, uh, a bunch of very different kind of works. Yeah, very cool. Part of the reason it's so difficult to lead a group like this and even to conceive of it is because there are no rules. Like kind of the the rule is there's no there's no rule in terms of like what's experimental or what like it can mean one thing to one person and another to another. I think we kind of know what it means. Like it excludes a certain like imagine a roulette wheel, right? It, ex it excludes the zeros, but like what's left, just the rest of the table. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and I don't you know when we we have been fortunate in that we were oversubscribed. So if there was a couple of people that sent me a, a kitchen table uh, drama. Uh, we didn't accept them, you know, so <laughs> we are able to uh, accept uh, playwrights that are already pushing in some way at the boundaries um, and how they do it. And I think you set it up like this. And I think it's great that, you know, that doesn't matter because we'll all learn from each other. I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about pushing in that direction. I hadn't thought about doing it in that manner, um, whatever that might be, having a talking animal, you know, I, I obviously 
there have been talking animals in the history of theater, but you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, my play is going to have talking animals. My play is go. called the animals. We're going to read it as part of our season later this month. It's March here in St. Paul, our entire season, including one good marriage. Uh, the play that I will be taking Amanda and her uh, counterpart to uh, in character to get Chinese that uh, tickets for that are on sale right now. Phoenix theater uh, in Minneapolis. And it's in May, correct? <laughs> the last two, the last two <laughs> weeks in May. Yes. Okay. Better than mm-hmm. March in Minneapolis, no doubt. Mm, yeah, it's a little cold. It's a little cold out here, but we love it. We love it. And you're listening to Mouthing Off on Frogtown Radio and online, and that's Frogtown Radio ninety four point one FM. We're very happy to be on Frogtown. Very cool, exciting stuff. Um, and we're we're chatting with uh, Tom Block right now. TomBlock.com. Easy to find. Um, Tom, I saw you had a uh, a 10-minute play get into one of these like best 10-minute play uh, collections recently. I did. Uh, and this, Tell this us about a, that play. Well, it's a very, it was the one that actually just did a cut edge. It's, um, it's, it's a tearjerker. It's a lot of humor, but a tearjerker. A guy shows up uh, at this woman's apartment, and she's slipping into dementia. And he was in love with her seven years before in high school. And Mm. first of all, she continues to not know who he is. She slips in and out of knowing who he is. But it turns out she was in love with him her whole life and waited for him. But he's too late. She can't. She keeps saying things like, if you're my doctor, you're not doing a very good job because I can't even get out of bed, you know. And But then she remembers him and then she forgets him. And it kind of goes back and forth. And he grows increasingly frustrated and distressed. Um, and then he says at the end, you know, I love you. And she's like, that is not an appropriate way for a doctor to talk to their patient. Lights. So that, that, um, that's more of a tearjerker short, uh, piece, but it, it, I just did that one in in the cut edge collective and it got very good, uh, response. So what's that play called, Tom? That's called Molly and Harry. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That was a nice one. And it's in this, uh, I think Smith and, Naus or Canals? Kraus. Smith and Kraus. Smith and Kraus. Yeah. They publish those like best of. They do a lot of monologue books for actors. Mm -hmm. They pulled a monologue from one of my plays years ago, and I still would occasionally hear from um, actors who would email me and go, I I want to do your monologue, but the play hasn't been published. And but they finally published the play. So I don't hear from the actors anymore, which is kind of a shame because it's like uh, yeah, I like hearing from people. That would always make my day. I've been living in New York City and toiling and struggling. And then an actor's like, I'm going to do your monologue. I'm trying to get into grad school. I'm like, awesome. Here's the PDF. So you're saying the that they wanted to see the whole play so they understood better the. I Correct. An actor prepares. That's a real, that's a good actor. Would they you should. say, Amanda? Mm-hmm. I think so. Absolutely. Although yeah, sometimes you- I, and I am uh, guilty of this, that when you read the whole play, then you you put on the play inside that piece when had you just done the piece and found all of what was in the uh, how do i say this all of the colors just in that piece some you know sometimes reading the whole play you can get it in your head in not a good way and I, and that's for auditioning too i've done that before so be careful read the whole play to read the play or not to read the play kevin <laughs> 
Mm, I, I, I can't really tell you. You got to do what's right for you. Uh, Tom, when is the uh, the annual season for anybody who's hearing this who's uh, in the vicinity of New York City? I mean, well, we, we just yeah. got it. We have it in, in, in three or four nights in February. Okay. So yeah. that's the previous year's group. Um, that's that's what I'm saying though. When do you accept admissions oh, for the group? Yeah. So yeah. we have admissions open from about mid-October till December one. Mm-hmm. Um and it was I thought it was I thought we were done. And on on November 20th, we had three submissions. Ah. I was emailing everybody uh in the in the current group, and I was like, wow, this this is over. And then we got like 15 submissions, you know, that's the way people are. It was great. It sure. was uh, thrilling. Um, and some really very, very strong. Uh, writers. So, um, yeah, so we open uh, in the fall and then by December 1st, we close it. And then by December 15th, we have chosen the the next cohort and you can never tell and any year could die, but this is a, we currently have a great passionate group. Um, we're expanding, you know, what we're doing. So it's, it's really, it's thrilling. Yeah. I really admire that. It takes this kind of thing to, a lot of people online, uh, get quite, uh, frustrated and in life get frustrated at the institutions and you feel like you see door after door after door closing in your face or simply that there isn't something for you and you know what the answer to that is form your own you know institution the only thing i get accepted to there you are i mean you know right i have to yeah, yeah. It's like uh, going to Costco. You print the card yourself. Yeah, I'm going in. I'm getting all the uh, the bulk uh, uh, products. That's great, Tom. I'm really glad to see that it's still alive. And this stuff can it can die, but it seems to me you've you've got some good momentum. And organizations like this can um, can live on too. I mean, obviously, you're the driving force right now. I've I've since left because I moved and it's not practical for me to participate in everything. But it's, it's great to see that sort of, it can continue. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's really just following the energy as long as there's organic energy. And really, in a year or two, we'd almost be ready to start applying for grants, for production grants, there are grants for small theater companies that don't have 501c3. We're not quite there yet. But I- I'm not, you know, it's not my main thing. So I can just let it happen mm. organically. And like I said, this year we went way down and I found this sometimes that things will get like, it's like an airplane getting within 50 feet of the ocean. You know what I mean? And then you're like, okay, I guess we're going down, but no, you know, somehow it, it gets that air and up it goes. <laughs> okay, good. And, and you have experience leading arts organizations with this international human rights arts festival. That's quite a, that is an institution. You care to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's uh, that's going very, very well. But we had our 50 feet from the ocean moment a couple of years ago. Um, so that's an international arts and human rights organization. We do performance here. We just did a, a three-day winter fest at the tank, and we got a NISCA, New York State Council on the Arts grant to support a two-year grant that will support a full-week festival. And it's all any performance uh, that has advocacy base. So it can be dance, circus theater, puppetry, music, but it has to have, we often build thematically around say immigration issues, LGBTQIA. We've done celebration of black men, celebration of women. Um, and that's in New York. And then we have a very a strong and growing international profile where we have a literary magazine that pays the writers, uh, a book publishing platform, international fellows, 
youth fellows, uh, three African secretariats. So we have three offices in Africa that are running uh, programming under our aegis. Um, and it's all advocacy based. Uh, and some of it, you know, we deal with artists that are in exile, artists that are in jail. I mean, the thing about art is if you're in one of the authoritarian countries in the world, it can be very, very dangerous to state your state your piece, you know, and mm. we've definitely worked with artists like that and we're able to give them some international transparency and help protect them. Um, we've worked with artists from 98 countries at this point in the world. So uh, we have a translation um, aspect. So yeah, that's really, that's thrilling. That's an exciting, um, but again, you, you, we did have a moment a couple of years ago and I just sent an email to the board and I was like, look, you guys, you know, we can pack this in. I can go to art school or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been running this? You founded this as well. I did. Um, yeah. I started in 2016. Our first event was March 2017 at a theater called Dixon Place. Yeah, and I know Dixon moved, Place. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we moved over to the Wild Project for three years. This is the in-person stuff. And then we um, hopefully are going to move to the tank. So uh, 2017, it's five years old, I guess, six years old, five or six years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. 2020 yeah wow. that's a, that's about right yeah very cool tom yeah i've enjoyed this conversation it's been a while buddy yeah. we haven't yeah this is you nice I, come out. you have uh you know ah, well i got we ones at home and you know oh, believe you me you just say plural oh yeah plural oh yeah i've got a little boy and a little girl yeah i remember, I remember anthony thomas mm -hmm. I yeah oh yeah yeah he's uh toddling around i'll get out there i'll get out there i gotta go out to see mari too hey this is a write-off now i mean exactly. let's <laughs> bad we'll, mouth uh... takes d or takes new york city <laughs> takes new york very Mini good apple to the big apple aha i'm in st paul mari you know i know and... i know they're not they're not the same minneapolis people have to tell you that all the time <laughs> And uh, Frogtown Radio can be heard in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hopefully, you know that. If you're tuned in, you know that. Uh, I got to ask, this is a bit of a, an indulgence. Um, and this is a question for Mari. We're reading Mari's play next month. All the details are at badmouthtc.com. Tom, I hope you won't mind if I just take a second and ask Mari, how's the play coming? It's it's coming. You know, it's more than, <laughs> half, it's more than halfway done. There's just a couple things you, you, that have to happen it's like doing chores you know what has mm. to happen but how are you going to make it happen <laughs> as, right. an, as an actor this is making me a little nervous tom because i feel like i'm going to have to improv the the end of both of their plays when it rolls around no no but... no good doing character you'll be fine eat chinese food or egg pizza. there we go yeah just don't corpse just keep doing something keep that ball in the air mari uh would you say the play is experimental you know, not in form. <laughs> mm, okay, in content, experimental, and in that content, counts. But not, yeah. not in form. Mm. It is. It is a kitchen table play. It's okay. a wild kitchen table play, but it is a kitchen table play. 
Well, you're going to hear all about it here on this podcast. We're probably not going to put our recordings of the plays out over the radio, but you can find every episode of Mouthing Off at badmouthtc.com. You can RSVP for the readings uh, and the Art of Darkness Live podcast later this year. It's all on the website, badmouthtc.com. Tom, as we kind of wind down, what what do you what do you have to plug? You've got your website. You have the Human Rights Art Arts Festival. Is anything coming up there? Is it, that's an annual sort of week long thing now? Well, it's an ongoing thing. So we mm. uh, we publish books, and you know, if you want to go to our website, ihraf dot org, uh, there's always opportunities. We have a literary magazine we publish every six days, and we pay uh, the writers which is already rather unusual um, in the world of literary magazines. Mm. So anybody with a, you know, an ax to grind or something to say uh, can submit something. Um, but no, there's, you know, it's, we just, I just did these two productions at the tank where the cut edge and also the Winterfest. Um, and now it's just a matter of, you know, writing grants and running the, the cut edge and uh, seeing mm-hmm. where things lead. Not yeah, do you have an immediately hmm. in my face, unfortunately? You got a lot though. The Tom Block back catalog is deep. There are deep cuts, and there's, there's a lot on his website. I would recommend checking it out. He's a real working artist, and also like I don't think of you as an arts administrator, right? But you can mm-hmm. I know that face you're making, they can't hear it, but yeah. But you're, but you, you're, you're also about the business of facilitating art and supporting artists, and I think there's something kind of beautiful about that. Yeah, and I, I would say this as an administrator. I speak the language of art. I have, I've had to learn how to speak the language of the funder. Hmm. You know, so I've had passionate involvement from artists around the world, and and let less passionate funding engagement. But that's that's a whole different language, and I'm learning to speak it. But I do speak the language of art, and and the artists are always um, thrilled to be a part of our uh, unique organization and and get a chance to be with like-minded artists and make connections. And, you know, we do a lot of that kind of community building work, uh, both locally and around the world. What advice do you have to artists who want to speak the arts admin language, but uh, kind of run up against that? block of this isn't my world. I don't want to get into the red tape and the bureaucracy, but how do you kind of motivate them to keep going and to, you know, make their own thing, do your, you know, doing the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to keep your eye on the prize. That is to say a lot of what I do, I don't like doing, you know, I'm, I'm doing budgeting, I'm doing spreadsheets, I'm doing things that feel very unnatural, but when I'm standing on stage or when I'm getting a, an email from someone in the Cameroon that, you know, this is a visionary organization and it's vital to, you know, putting out and helping her in her struggle to bring peace in Bamenda, Cameroon, you know, that you have to just say, okay, all that stuff is worth it. So you have to keep your eye on that, why you're doing it. And also, as Jenny Yellen said, sometimes you got to do what you hate to do what you love. And I think that is really important to keep in mind. Janet Yellen said that, of all people. Kevin, I'm quoting the Treasury Secretary. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah, I know know who Janet Yellen is. Believe me. I'm in crypto. Are we really want to end on a Janet Yellen note? (laughs) That was, sure. But it was a beautiful quote. Beautiful. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. And and we're with the great Tom Block. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully, you. listen, you've got an open invitation. We're doing this uh, old-timey radio show and podcast, obviously. It's been really nice to connect. I know it's a little, ah, we're doing it over the radio. We're recording a podcast, but it really is. It's nice to hear your voice and to, and to see you doing so well. And I'm glad to see Cut Edge is alive and well. Well, yeah, and I'd love to see how we can connect with Bad Mouth and, and maybe develop something. We've talked about it. It's up on the website. It says Twin Cities, New York Online. Mm. Um, but it would it would be great to figure something out, whether a joint salon every few months or something, you know, but some way that we could uh, begin to connect the two communities, because I, th I think it sounds like you got a real thriving one there. And um, Morris always merrier until it's not. Right. 